Grace Pod is a ministry of Grace Church Greenwich. For more resources to help you get to know God better through His Word, including bite-sized theology and answers to big questions, do check out www.greenwich.church. We hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to Grace Pod, and today we're looking at Exodus chapter 1 and 2, which begins with a very gruesome scene. Do you want to tell us about that, Andy? Yeah, that's right. We've got um, Joseph took the people of Israel down to Egypt, but now we've got a regime change and a pharaoh who's against them. And he does a whole bunch of things, uh, first putting them to forced labour and then telling the midwives to kill the baby boys and then eventually telling the whole nation just to exterminate all the children, all the boys um, who are Israelites. And so we've got this terrible situation for the people of God. And I guess this is the kind of chapter that makes people ask, you know, where is God when it, when the suffering? You know, why, why didn't God do something about the Christians in Syria who were being massacred by Islamic State? You know, where is God? His own people are being brutally oppressed. And um, one of the things that we spot, first of all, that gives us a little bit of hope that God is present, he's not absent from this scene, is that we lots of the language from it um, is familiar language um, from Genesis. So we get lots of um, be fruitful and multiply sort of language. I think it comes three times, doesn't it? Verse 7, the people were fruitful, increased greatly, they multiplied. And then we come up again in verse 10, Pharaoh's threatened lest the people multiply. But verse 12, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And then verse 20, the people multiplied. So you can't really miss it that the author is rubbing your face in the fact this is a people that are fruitful and multiply. Get it? And and there's this lovely idea that um, there's nothing very can do about it. You know, the, the beach ball, you keep pushing it below the surface of the swimming pool and it always leaps up again. And, you know, God dealt with them wise verse 20 and the people multiplied and grew very strong every attempt he makes backfires and even though we don't get many mentions of God we know that he's behind this and um, uh, multiplying his people and the reason we know God's behind it is because of the backstory right so if you just had I mean it, it is weird as you say that how come a people that are being oppressed want to have lots of children I mean the various strategies they'll be too exhausted when they get home to think about activity between the sheets but somehow um, the opposite happens it, it looks odd but the reason we know it's God's handiwork is because of the backstory so I guess there's a bit of the promise to Abraham Isaac and Jacob here there'll be a lot of that in in the book of Exodus and God had said to um, Abraham I'll make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and then in another place he says as numerous as the grains of sand on the seashore and then he says, I think to Jacob, I'll make you as numerous as the dust of the earth, which one of my friends, when she was, she just bought a new Dyson and she wrote to me and said, Andrew, I've been thinking about God's promises and it's a lot, you know, the dust of the earth. So we're expecting from the promises to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, a numerous people. We're also expecting them to live in the land of Canaan. I suppose at the beginning of Exodus, you think, well, yes, we've got people. We haven't got the land of Canaan yet. We, that's, you know, that's the bit of the story that needs to progress. But actually, we can go even further back than to Genesis chapter 12, the promise to Abraham. So the, the be fruitful and multiply language is straight from Genesis 1, God's purposes for humanity. And actually, Genesis 12 is a relaunch of God's plan A. So um, this kind of fruitful, numerous um, image bearing group who are ruling the world in relationship with God. That's what Genesis 12 
relaunches, it says, let's get Genesis 1 back on track. And so when we discover that here are people who um, are still multiplying under God's blessing, it makes us question, well, what about the rest of the promise? They're in the wrong place and they're not ruling the world in freedom. They are oppressed. And so the, the book begins anticipating the question well how will God deal with the the wrong location and the oppression and that's what the rest of the book's going to deal with and having got our attention with this repeated phrase um, be fruitful multiply we think of Genesis 1 we then inevitably start looking the whole chapter through a Genesis 1 2 3 lens and we start seeing some other echoes as well so because of um, human sin um, God's people are evicted from the Garden of Eden and then God pronounces these curses in Genesis chapter 3 specifically on work um, Adam is told that his work will become toil and the ground will will yield its fruit only with thorns and thistles and there's a curse on childbearing so Eve is told that in pain she'll, be, she'll bring forth children and it's interesting in Exodus chapter 1 the tyranny of Pharaoh is expressed in exactly these two areas. There's a curse on work because he makes their work bitter by setting taskmasters over them. And it's a curse on childbearing because he tells the midwives to kill the children, even though they don't do that. And the other bit of um, Genesis 3 uh, background that we can hear in Exodus 1 is that there's this idea in Genesis 3 that there'll be a, a conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And we see that played out. So there, there is um, a hero, um, certainly by the end of the beginning of Exodus 2. And the seed of the serpent Pharaoh is trying to stamp out and crush the seed of the woman who's going to be the liberator, the deliverer. And God is protecting um, this uh, rescuer, uh, baby Moses. And so we've got lots of echoes that God's in charge and he's carrying out his original purposes. So just to summarise where we got to, we're looking at this awful scene where people are being beaten and oppressed and then eventually killed. But we've seen that behind the scenes, there's all of these echoes of God's promises and God's creation purposes. And so I guess it's set up now as creation versus curse, you know, which one is going to win or God's promises versus Satan's opposition, God versus Pharaoh, he's going to win. And in every round of the drama, in every round of the drama, God wins. And in some, I mean, it, it, I was going to say it's comic. I mean, it isn't very comic if you're in this in the situation because things are awful. But there's a kind of black comedy to it. There's a um, the way that God humiliates Pharaoh uh, round by round. So in in round one, um, we've already said you know that the more Pharaoh attempts to reduce the population, the more God increases the population. Do you want us to tell us round two with the midwives? Yeah, and it, it's we're deliberately meant to enjoy this and, and laugh at it so um we've just we've got the the joe biden of his day that he's in charge you know vladimir putin someone like that and he everyone in the world knows his name and yet the um author moses forgets his name he's <laughs> we never told it he's just the pharaoh whoever that is whoever he is and then shifra and pua on the other hand these two hebrew midwives they get their front of stage and um you know he they're just outwitting him and they come up with this excellent um you know ruse they say I, I imagine they tell the hebrew women you know make sure you get get the child out before we get there but what they tell pharaoh is 
Um, the Hebrew women, verse 19, are not like the Egyptian women. They're vigorous and give birth before we, we get there. And, you know, he has to buy this silly ruse. That, and then, you know, God blesses them because they fear him rather than Pharaoh. And and at each stage, it is vintage God. So he's he's not just beating Pharaoh, he's humiliating him again and again. And, and one of the things that's vintage God is that the, the five principal heroic characters um, up to chapter 2, verse 10, are all women. Um, so in a patriarchal society, Pharaoh thinks he's in charge of the world and the people who, who make fun of him um, are J- Moses' mother, his sister, um, the midwives, and then he, the Lord uses um, Pharaoh's own daughter to smuggle his great enemy um, so that he ends up bringing him up at his own table preparing him for a rebellion and it's all you know vintage god god is make, making fun of him and also and also kind of it dig, dignifying the ministry of of these um so so these women are just nourish, doing ordinary um kind of nourishing of children protecting uh, only one of them's actually a mother but they're all mothers in israel that's the phrase kevin de young puts in in his brilliant book in that they're all um, just doing their ordinary job and used for the salvation of the world. This is Kevin De Young's book, Men and Women in the Church, <clears throat> and he's arguing that um, men and women are defined partly in, in relation to childbearing and child rearing, and you don't have to be a biological mother to be motherly, and he uses this chapter as, as part of the illustration of that. Yeah, yeah that's right. Um, just as an aside, before we go on... Um, Lots of Christians have struggled with the midwives because it does look like they're not being totally <laughs> straightforward with the truth. You know, Pharaoh says, "Why aren't you killing the Hebrew children?" Oh, we couldn't because they um, are they lying, and is it okay for Christians to lie? And, and Christians differ on this. I, I think I'm persuaded that um, when the Ten Commandments outlaws lying, it's qualified by various things. For example. Um, you know, we see a similar thing with with Rahab sending um, the when, when she's sheltering the spies, sending the police off in the wrong direction. I think um, the responsibility for absolute truthfulness may be different when you're um, in that sort of situation where you've got an enemy who doesn't deserve uh, truth. You know, you're in a, a situation of espionage, which is what these midwives are in. So I, I think that's how I read it. Yeah, it's like the command of thou shalt not kill turns out not to mean that you can't go to war or that there shouldn't be the death penalty, even in the concept of the Pentateuch. And I guess the command don't bear false witness is about don't cause harm to somebody by your lies in court. And then in the New Testament, that becomes do not lie to one another. So within the Christian community, don't lie. But that doesn't mean you have to tell the truth to an army trying to kill you. Yeah, yeah, I think I think I think the same. Um so these women, Shipra and Pura, they're, they're real heroes, actually, um, because, verse 17, they fear God and therefore they don't obey the king. So I guess they fear God more than they fear Pharaoh. Um, fearing God sounds negative in our day, doesn't it? Like as if being afraid of God, surely God would want us to love him and trust him. But actually in the Old Testament or, and in the New Testament, fearing God is a very positive attitude. It's saying God is a bigger deal in my mind than Pharaoh is and I'll, therefore I'll... I'll do what he wants rather than what Pharaoh wants. Yeah. One of the things I, I really enjoy in these verses, um, and I think we're meant to appreciate some of the comedy, is another thing that's vintage God is he doesn't do things by halves. He doesn't just scrimp on 
well, I'm going to save this baby who's going to be the res- rescuer. He thinks, oh, well, what shall I do? I'll get him brought up by his mother. That'd be good. She'll be a good candidate for that. And I'll get her paid to do it. Why not? Let's throw that in. And let's bring him up uh, in the palace. Let's do that. And that way he'll get the best possible training to be the deliverer of God's people. He'll be, um, etc. And it's just more and more it's built up to be just only the Lord would do this. He just does, does things in a very comic and lavish way. But this comes about all because Moses' mother does a very frightening thing, doesn't she? So she's got she's given birth to a son in, in pretty much the worst circumstances. People found it pretty difficult to have children during the pandemic. I've got a couple of friends who were very isolated in early days of motherhood because it was the lockdown. But that's nothing compared with this. I mean, soldiers are looking for children to kill them. And she's got a child and she hides him for three months. I mean, how do you even do that? You know, we... You think, oh, I don't want to disturb the neighbours when my baby wakes up in the night. But this is, I don't want the soldiers to hear. It's just terrifying. And then she does she does something which, on the one hand, you've got to be desperate to do. And the other hand, shows enormous faith. So um, she puts her baby in a little basket, um, the original Moses basket, as someone described it, in, in the river. And so there's this kind of irony here because Pharaoh had said, put all the male children in the Nile. I to drown them and she kind of obeys him but not really because she puts her child in the Nile but with one difference this little basket but actually when we understand a little bit more about this basket we realize that it's an exercise of tremendous faith in God I mean you've got to be desperate to abandon a baby just in the river I mean what's going on but actually something quite amazing is going on do you want to tell us about the word that our translation rather unhelpfully describes as a, a basket yeah, so it's an unusual word and it's elsewhere in Genesis called the an ark. And we're particularly told in chapter 2, verse 3, it's daubed with bitumen and pitch. So it's arky and construction as well. <laughs> There's only one other ark in the Bible, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. This is just a smaller one, which you can't fit lots of animals in. But otherwise, it is the same word as the Noah one. And, and this is alerting us to a theme which we're going to see more and more, which is that what what happens to the rescuer then happens to the rescued so the redeemer moses he charts a course which his people are going to follow so he's rescued through the water and eventually in in chapter 14 and 15 the people are going to be rescued through water and we're going to see even in chapter two um you know he leaves the land associated with the death of an egyptian he goes out into the wilderness he sees god in a fire at horeb he's given instructions and all of that is going to happen to the people so they're going to you know, have an exodus, death of the Egyptian firstborn. They'll go into the wilderness. They'll meet God at Sinai. They'll get the Ten Commandments. So his life um, is that he's a forerunner, and he prefigures what will happen to them. Now, this idea of Moses as the preview or having the preview life actually solves a puzzle for us that I think is probably one of the things that um, most people instinctively read the wrong way. And I say that because I think I probably read it the wrong way when I first read it. So this scene when Moses has grown up and he sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew and he looks this way and that and seeing no one, he strikes down the Egyptian. He kills him and hides him in the sand. And then he gets found out and the Israelites aren't very happy. Who made you ruler and judge over us? And Pharaoh is not very happy um, and tries to kill him and he has to run away. Um, We read that and on first sight, it looks like Moses has totally stuffed up God's plan. So he's he's born in the royal palace he grows up knowing pharaoh you think 
he's in prime position to negotiate some kind of diplomatic solution. Um, and yet he blows it all in an impulsive, impetuous sort of lashing out as an angry young man. We we instinctively read it that, that way. Well, I think many people do. But that isn't the way, crucially, that the New Testament reads it. And I, I guess the, the best commentator on the Bible is the Bible. And we've got two places in the New Testament that give a very different um, perspective on what's happening here. Do you want to share them with us? Yeah, so the first one is in Stephen's speech in Acts 7, and I think around 20, verse 23, he retells the story. When we answer, ask the question, who made you ruler and judge? The answer is God. Um, God <laughs> raised up Moses to be ruler and judge. And really, the according to Stephen, the passage is here to teach us about the resistance of the people to receive the one that God has raised up for them. So what they should have said, they see Moses executing the Egyptian and they should say wow God has given us a a ruler who is prepared to take on the enemy and will rally behind him but they don't they don't and so as we read this we should be putting ourselves in the sandals of the Israelites who fail to respond as we should when God gives us a redeemer and we fail to get behind him and be loyal to him um I I think you know arguably there are things that Moses does which are clumsy um, and we're going to see there's going to be a a progress in Moses so God's going to put him looking after his father-in-law's sheep for 40 years and by the end of that he's going to be very different sort of character and reluctant to go and and that's the sort of raw material God will then be ready to use because um, he will have less self-confidence and will have to build his confidence in God so there is something not quite right at this stage in what Moses does but really the accent is on the problem with the Israelites And then in Hebrews 11, similarly, we're told that by faith, Moses, when he'd grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing to be mistreated with the people of God rather than enjoying the fleeting pleasures of sin. And that must be relating to this point. This is the point where he leaves the palace and identifies with his people. And it's costly for him. So um, Hebrews describes it as a faithful choice to identify with the oppressed rather than the oppressor rather than just you know a lashing lashing out so we're saying yeah sure there might be some youthful impetuousness about the way he does it but the action is faith motivated and it's a little um it's a hint that god is using him raising him up for good purposes yeah. um and then that i suppose when we when we see oh the new testament read it differently to us what we then do is we then look back at exodus and say okay what what did i miss what are the clues actually in the chapter that showed Stephen and the author of the Hebrews the correct reading. And you mentioned earlier that one of the things is just what happens next gives you confidence that this is not... Yeah, so when he gets out into the desert and he he's at a well and there's these bullies who are not letting um, the women draw up water and then he gets involved and he shows the same courage and, you know, that he's a sort of deliverer character. And so even the immediate context tells you that here's a worthy and noble guy who is trying to rescue other people um and and then you notice and this is a lovely thing um that actually and you've already mentioned that moses life is a preview of the whole nation's life but you start realizing that that is very specifically true and you look for the main verbs in this second half of chapter two and you realize that all of them are key exodus verbs so it begins with with moses seeing the oppression of his people and the chapter um, will, um, the next chapter will tell us that God sees 
the oppression of his people. And then Moses strikes the Egyptian and hides him in the sand. And later in the plagues, it'll be the same word. God strikes Pharaoh with the plague on the firstborn. And then Moses comes to the, the shepherds, the bully shepherds, and saves the women. And they go home and they say, somebody delivered us. And those two verbs, saved and delivered, are the key verbs that are used of what God does. And then um, Moses, I don't know if this is one, but he waters the flock for them. Or later, God will provide miraculous water from a rock in the desert. But then ultimately, they, he goes home with the girl who's to, to become his fiance and his wife. Um, and um, he is content to dwell with them. And that's that's the climax of Exodus, where God, with his rescue people that he's delivered and saved, comes to dwell with them. So actually, the whole, it really is a, a preview. It's a trailer of the whole thing. But maybe you only perceive that with hindsight when you look quite closely. And that kind of takes us to the point of these whole chapters, that there's there's a lot of amazing things happening in the middle of what is basically a genocide. Yeah. Yeah, and and when they cry out at the end of chapter two, you know they they're really at the in the pits. The people of Israel groan because of their slavery. They cry out for help, um, and there's uh, wonderfully the Lord hears their cry. Uh, he hears their groaning, and he remembers his covenant with Abraham. And it says God knew, and it's it's a beautiful way to to finish because um, what we discover is that um, God is responding. And how does God respond? Answer, he does a lot in advance. <laughs> so we're actually 40 years in um, to the story. You know, we've, um, uh, Moses wasn't even born at the beginning and now he's 40 years old. Um, but And the Lord has been working behind the scenes all this time, raising up secretly this hero who's going to deliver them. And so wonderfully he it's not just that he responds to their Christ he he's ready beforehand and he goes oh yeah and we're going to see this in you know in a few chapters of time chapter four Moses is really grumpy and then uh, God says oh I've sent Aaron he's halfway to you it's like oh <laughs> I, I anticipated this whole conversation and I've already answered it um and that's the way I, it's such an encouragement to us that we we look out and we say what is the Lord doing and the answer is 10,000 things that you've got no idea about and some of which you won't see for a generation. Um, and it's a, a beautiful picture of what our God is like. And I guess that's the challenge of faith of things in things that we cannot see, right? So it, if you can imagine yourselves, as you put it, in their sandals, you only see brutality and suffering. And you think, where is God in, in this? But the eye of faith says God is true to his promises and is keeping them and i guess we we have a advantage over the first readers because we've got the holy spirit is showing us in the in these words what is really going on but of course in our own circumstances we don't always we don't get that narrative to explain or to point out god's hand and so we just have to do what these women do i mean they are the they're the model response aren't they? the, the egyptian women they sorry their uh, midwives they fear god rather than pharaoh and they do the right thing yeah. Uh, Moses' mother trusts God, so she commends commends her baby to God's promises with this ark. Um, Moses acts courageously in um, in executing this um, this Egyptian tyrant, but none of them see the whole picture at the time. So that's the challenge to us: will we fear God? Will we trust God? Will we not that we should murder people on God's behalf? Moses is quite unique in that um, as the act as the agent of God's judgment but to act in line with God's promises before we see them come to fulfillment. Yeah, and, and God is mainly hidden 
and yet the the little glimpse we are told of about him at the end of chapter two is such a beautiful picture so you get these you know the, the, the people crying out and then you discover two things one um they cr- their cry comes up to god and he hears and he knows and i like to think you know the that kind of physiological thing that happens with a mother and a baby who cries and there's something that is that is irresistible they cannot sit still while the baby cries they just have to respond and yet that's balanced with and god remembered his covenant with abraham and so here we have a god he's not just full of compassion and responsive um, but you could think that kind of God will, you know, he would be very whimsical and he'd, you know, flip between different ideas. As, it, as if God is just controlled by our demands or our situation. Exactly. And yet, actually, he's working to timetable. He's He knew what he was going to do back in the days of Abraham. He promised this. And, and he said in Abraham in Genesis 15, you're going to be 400 years, etc. So God is not caught by surprise. He's totally steadfast, faithful and yet full of compassion. So for the theologians who are listening, this is the debate about God's passibility. And theologians have been wary of saying God has got emotions in case it makes him vulnerable to you know big influence. Because if someone's emotional, you can emotionally manipulate them. Um, and yet, you know, to go the other way and say God doesn't feel anything is also not biblical. So you're saying here's this middle road, road where God feels things, but he's not vulnerable to external influence because he feels things in line with his own purposes and what he's planned it's not external things it's within his plan yeah um brilliant we're, we're going to pause there thanks so much for listening thank you for listening to grace pod for more information about grace church greenwich visit www.greenwich.church